Today's scripture reading is taken from Romans 15, verse 17 to 29. Verse 17. In Jesus Christ, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is returned, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. Verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aids to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Verse 28. When therefore I have completed these and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This is the word of God. As you know, we have been traveling for almost a year through the book of Acts, and so some of you may be surprised that we're reading from Romans. The passage of Scripture supplied to me <clears throat> this morning is Acts 22 through Acts 28. I'm not ashamed to preach seven chapters. <laughs> but I suspect that you will be exhausted listening to me preach seven chapters. So what we have just listened to from the book of Romans, chapter 15, is actually a summary of seven chapters in Acts. And before we dig into this, let me just share with you what an extraordinary planner I am. Uh, I know this is important because you're know, supposed to be the lead guy who hopefully does have a plan. I don't have a plan actually to stop the flashing screen. Maybe it's me up here. Is it not plugged in properly? So when I was 17 uh, and not really wanting to be in school, I developed this wonderful plan with a friend of mine who was a basketball player. He was very tall and I was like I now am. Uh, only I'm actually shorter. But even then, when I was 17, compared to him, I, I was just really, really short. But we had this great plan that we planned together. Uh, though um, school was in, I was not technically in school, so I was free to make plans for butter clams. I don't know if you have butter clams in the tropics, but in, 
in the Pacific coast, butter clams are to die for. And so we began to birth this plan to go down south of where I lived, five miles back then from the American border, to a period or, or to a place that is called Mud Bay. Now, just, this is an important part of the plan because it wasn't called Sandy Bay or Rocky Bay or Grassy Bay. It was called Mud Bay. I know it's Mud Bay because my friend Skinny rode his motorcycle onto the flats of Mud Bay, and it is still there. 500 years from now, archaeologists will dig up something and say, what, what happened? What tragedy happened? Skinny, his name is Skinny, he rode his, his motorcycle out of mud flats, it began to sink and he could barely get out himself. He left his motorcycle and it's, it's actually still right there. So, thanks to Google Planet, I can bring you there. It was night. <laughs> oh, there, there it is. <laughs> so, um, you can see the river. is a serpentine river that flows somewhere north Surrey, south Vancouver, is, is, is the headwaters of the serpentine <laughs> Okay, it was day, then it was night. Now it's day. <laughs> oh, now it's night. <laughs> so th this river, you can access it by going on the highway south to America, which at this point I'd never been to, but I did know that it was about 17 kilometers to go around Mud Bay on the highway to America to Crescent Beach where the sand and the butter clams were. So my friend and I, we, we drew out a map, a foldable map. Okay, it was a McDonald's napkin. <laughs> we, we, we drew out this map because there was no internet there and then we planned and, and all you need for butter clams is butter and garlic and of course clams. And so I brought my mother's butter and and my mother's garlic, and he brought his mother's pot and a little shovel he got from I don't know where. We packed backpacks, and we tried to think of every possible conceivable thing that would happen to make sure we were successful in eating garlic butter butter prawns at the end of that day. And a part of the plan was, why go all the way around almost to another country if you can take a shortcut, which is this bridge, well, technically, okay, it's a, it's a railroad trestle across because that trestle is only three kilometers instead of the very, very long route on the highway. We would have to ride our bikes and what to do with our bikes, so we decided we'll walk across the trestle. And my friend, so clever, even brought goggles. Well, technically, there was no goggles. It was just a, a big swimming mask in case we needed to jump. Because it's not sand flats, right? And, and Skinny's motorcycle is somewhere deep down there. So we planned for everything. The one thing we didn't plan for was this train. Now, we did plan to listen for a train. You know how you listen for a train. You get down on your hands and knees, and you put your ear on the railroad track because that metal carries sound a long way. But trains are fast. Who knew? So we got about halfway across, <laughs> and we heard this blowing horn, and I looked back, this bright light, and um, that's when the plan began to unravel. 
Now, did I say he was tall? He was tall, and so he began to jog. Now, when you're jogging on, an, on a bridge made for trains, you have to watch your feet because you don't want to step in the gap. Mind the gap. You've heard of that, right? But this is a serious gap. There's a gap, and underneath, there's 15 meters, and then there's Skinny's motorcycle, another 15 meters in the mud. And so I've got these legs. He's got basketball legs. So you know the, the distance between tracks are just like this, which is not enough when there's a train behind you. So you have to build speed. The most I could do was two of those railroad ties, and then I had to stop because I'm about two and a half, which ends up with Skinny's motorcycle. He ran on ahead. He was so fast because he could do three or four ties. This guy was monstrous. He didn't even plan for that, let's be honest. That was just God's gift to him. And I was stuck, trailed way behind. And this, at this point, the engineer on this train is blaring his horn. And, and I've got to decide, after my great plan unravels, and he starts shouting, jump, I've got the goggles. It's low tide. We didn't plan for low tide. He was so far ahead, he was able to circle back and drop down to a platform where there was a ladder. And he shouted, drop down. So I dropped down, no ladder. But you know, the trestle is built like this. And so I was falling like this until I had hit that pillar. And there I was, a 17-year-old boy, desperately grasping on tar and pitch of the pillar of a train trestle. So here's where I'm going with this. What do you do when your, your plans begin to unravel? <laughs> I mean, I know what I did. I screamed for help. But, but what do you do when you have this very carefully planned out life and then something happens? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I cried help and then I cried, Jesus, why? As if it's his fault like to skip school to go dig for butter clams, right? But how many times do we do that when we've got this carefully worked out plan and everything begins to unravel and then we start believing in God whose fault it always is? I, I, I began to cry out for help. Have you heard of Robbie Burns? He's a Scottish poet, so our people know about Robbie Burns. I grew up with his poems. You know, he's got this poem called To a Mouse. He's writing it in his pantry while he watches this little mouse and he writes this little poem. And the most famous line in that poem is, the best laid plans of mice and men go oft awry. Have you ever had a plan that went awry? You planned it carefully? This is the point. How do we develop a biblical worldview to address our plans as they begin to collapse? What kind of response should God's people have when our dreams are crushed, when our plans go awry? How should God's people respond? So first, let me give a little bit of a background in the seven chapters of Acts. Remember, Paul is wrapping up two and a half years of ministry at Ephesus. 
He had called the elders to come and meet with him in Miletus. By this time, he was already halfway home. By this time, by the time he called the elders to him in Miletus, he had already left Ephesus and gone through Macedonia and what is now known as Greece and visited every church he had planted on his second missionary journey. Remember, he's finishing now his third missionary journeys. How many missionary journeys did he take? I'm going to suggest not the three that we know, but four, because his great plan that he began to develop in Ephesus was beginning to unravel. And we, we see him in Romans chapter 15, verse 9, saying, look, this is why I'm leaving this area. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, in this entire region, I have demonstrated a life that is not ashamed of the gospel. I have lived for this good news word from the very moment I stepped foot in this entire region. Now let me bring up a map. This is the map of different portions of that part of the Roman Empire. This is the region the Apostle Paul was talking about. He was saying in this entire region, uh, Illyricum, by the way, is, is, that's Jerusalem, and Illyricum is that top most western corner of that part of the Roman Empire. And this is what the Apostle Paul was saying. Because I was committed not to having church, not even to starting church, but to making disciples who make disciples, I was committed to teaching obedience-based discipleship. That's why baptism is so important. That's why I teach it as a first step of obedience. Because if you're delaying on this, then I'm pretty sure the next yes is going to be difficult for you too. It's the first step. Now, the Apostle Paul is saying that this entire region is now saturated with news of the gospel. Now, by the way, that, that means in, in modern day terms, he he's talking about Israel, he's talking about Lebanon, he's talking about Cyprus, Syria, Turkey, Macedonia, Greece, Albania, Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, and Kosovo all saturated with the gospel because of this man's commitment to live in a way that's not ashamed of the gospel, in his commitment to raise up disciples who were not ashamed of the gospel. This entire region had heard of the name Jesus Christ, and Paul was sure that God wasn't done with him yet. And so in verses 23 and 24, he says this, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, meaning Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he's on his way back. At this point, he's in Corinth. He's not planning on tarrying in Rome because he's writing right now this theological treatise to the church at Rome, which would become the book of Romans as we now know it today. He was very confident that with Peter's teaching and training, he could send this theological treatise that we call the book of Rome, and they would well be set up to be obedient disciples there in Rome. So he was just planning on passing. It's important to see the, that the Apostle Paul had a certain worldview of himself. This doesn't mean that everybody needs to have this worldview, but Paul's worldview for himself was that he did not consider himself primarily to be a pastor. 
He saw himself to be a pioneering missionary. He longed to be in places where the gospel was not yet known. And so just as was just read to us in Romans chapter 15, verses 20 and 21, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. That just means share good news. Not teach the church, but to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. For as it is written, those who have never been told will see. Those who have never heard will understand. Why? Because of pioneer missionaries like the Apostle Paul. So, when he thought about Spain, now, now think of this, at, at this point in time, Spain was just a remote outpost. Right? Here, here again is the entire Roman Empire. Spain is the westernmost corner of the Roman Empire. And Spain in the first century was a developing colony. It was only colonized not because there was people there who could pay taxes, because Spaniards at that time were complete barbarians. They had no system of cash. They did everything by barter. They slaughtered a goat. They traded it for wheat. The only reason it was colonized was for the minerals in Spain. So, so it was a pagan, barbaric place with no comfort of Christian fellowship, with no church to welcome or support him. And Paul's response was, that is right up my alley. That is right in my lane. God made me for this. That is why his plan was everything else put aside. Everything else was a second thought. His destination was Spain. And so he put together a plan to get him there. And it was an amazing plan. The first part of his amazing plan was, you know, I'm going to leave Ephesus. Because if you're a pioneering missionary, you're comfortable after a certain amount of time as a church grows and begins to know about the gospel and begins to reproduce disciples who also are not ashamed for the gospel, the pioneer missionary begins to feel a little holy discontent. And so the Apostle Paul had already left Ephesus. That was first step in his plan. The second step in his plan is, I am going to go back to every church I planted in my second last missionary journey, and I'm going to ask them to support the church in Jerusalem that had now grown impoverished. Why? Because they were considered to be cult members. Because they declared that the long-awaited Messiah was Jesus. That's why they called him Jesus Christ, Christ is Greek, for Messiah. That ostracized them in their own community. After they used up all the funds that they all sold their property for, they began to go hungry. They couldn't find work. And so the Apostle Paul said, it's something that we should do. Support this church through whom we got spiritual blessings. We ought to support them practically. That was the second step in his plan. The third step in his plan was he was going to deliver it to Jerusalem. And you heard, remember Eugene preached last Sunday and, and he talked about Paul coming back to Jerusalem. That, that's right there in Acts chapter 21. He, he presented the offering to the church 
at Jerusalem. The fourth plan was stop by Rome on the way to Spain. And the fifth part was enjoy the sanction and support of the Holy Spirit. You, you see, he was so convinced that butter clams, or I mean Spain, was at the end of his journey, he assumed that God was going to bless his plan. And, and we know he assumed that because he says, I will come full of the blessing of Christ. That's verse 29. But, but here's where it all began to unravel. So when you have an amazing plan that has unanticipated issues, here's the first one. Paul had followers. Now, I, I know all of you who are on Twitter, you think it's awesome to have followers. I think it's awesome that Jesus has followers. If you have followers, not so awesome. The apostle Paul had followers. We know that because as Eugene shared, when he got back to Jerusalem, remember Pastor James said, hey, you know, um, your reputation has gone south since you left, so let's be a little conciliatory. You, why don't you pay for the finished fast, the, the vow that these, the Nazarite vow that these brothers have taken, uh, pay for them to get their heads shaved, bring them to the temple, then everybody will know you're a good Jew after all, you're not rejecting Jewish people. And so that's what he agreed to do. And he got in the temple and realized, oh, oh I've got some followers from Thessalonica. They were not God followers. They were following Paul back to Jerusalem. And in the middle of the temple, they shouted, help us, brothers, help us. This guy right here, the one with the bald men, he is talking bad about you everywhere in Asia. He's gone to Macedonia, and everywhere he goes, he besmirches you and slanders you, and there was a riot in the temple. This, the second wrinkle in his plan is he had to take a Caesarean sabbatical. So the first one you can see in Acts chapter 21 and Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 23 and 24, we see he's got to take a sudden Caesarean sabbatical. Why? Because he would have been killed in that temple, except for the fact that the Roman army rushed the temple and brought him into protective custody. And so he was taken out of the temple, covered by armed Roman guards, and instead of heading west to Spain, which was his plan, he went 120 miles or kilometers north to Caesarea and sat in prison until the governor had a chance to consider his case. Two years he sat in a Caesarean prison. That is a plan that's gone awry. Two years, he waited for Felix to make a decision, and Felix never could because this is a real volatile part of the Roman Empire. If he made the wrong decision, there would be riots not just in the temple, but everywhere. So for two years, he couldn't make a decision until he was succeeded by Festus. And Festus, because he's new, kind of like a new pastor, should earn some relational capital before he makes changes. A new governor felt like, oh, I've got to make friends with the Jews because um, my political career depends on it. And, and so he, he went down to Jerusalem himself and said, um, 
hey, is there anything I can do for you guys? This is Acts 25, 26. And the Jewish leader said, oh, speaking of that, you've got a guy up in prison in Caesarea. We recommend that you bring him back down to Jerusalem so we can kill him. I mean, so we could talk about the problems he's causing. Then Festus knew he had a problem because he'd already interrogated the Apostle Paul and he realized there's no reason to kill this guy. He's not done nothing wrong, nothing against the law. So he said this, why don't you come up here instead? Come up to Caesarea. Join me and you yourselves can see how harmless he is. I mean, he's sitting in a prison. Things became so bad in that judgment. At one point in it, Festus even cries out, Paul, you are crazy. You studied so much, you've gone mental. That's Acts 26, verse 24. And so Paul did at that point what every Roman citizen had a right to do. He appealed to Caesar. Unfortunately, his plan hadn't included Nero being Caesar at that time. Would have been awesome if Constantine or anybody besides Nero was emperor at that time. But he did what every Roman citizen had a right to do. Hey, choir. And that is appeal to Nero. So at the very point at which he was about to be handed over, he said, I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to Nero. And that was Festus out. So he sent him in chains to Rome. Remember Rome? The place he was just going to stop by, have some friendly fellowship, get a little bit of assistance, and just, you know, a detour, a rest stop on the way to Spain. He never planned to get there in chains. So, here's the question. So, what does this have to do with us? My, my feeling is all of us have had trains or chains that have ruined good plans. My, my guess is there are some of you sitting here who expected that you'd be married by now. I'm guessing that there's some here who never planned to be a widow. I'm, I'm assuming there, there are some who had great plans for your children. And, and, and now they're, they're in the process of ruining themselves, their, their future, their physical life is in a wreck, their spiritual life is in a wreck. It wasn't your plan, but it came like a train. It, it ran over your plans. It, 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 it wrinkled your dreams. It, it maybe even crushed your dreams. All of us sitting here, no matter how big our smile is when we sing those gospel songs, no matter how intently we listen every Sunday, all of us have got something. Some heart-rending, life-wrecking train that has just run over us. And so here is the question. How does God want us to develop a worldview with which to respond to plans that are wrecked, to dreams that are shattered, and demonstrate our absolute confidence in a sovereign God who intrudes in life and trumps shattered dreams for His glory and our good? We'll do this in a hurry. In short, when you have a wonderful plan, that has unexpected issues, at that moment, it demands a gospel response. Many of you have heard this. 
Proverbs 16, verse 9, the heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. We're having an EGM pretty soon, right? And everybody's going to want to know, what is the ministry plan for 2018? The heart of a man makes his plan, but the Lord establishes his step. The first thing is, I trust not in my plans, but in the Lord who establishes my steps. Even when plans go awry, because, you know, sent to Roman chains was not a part of the Apostle Paul's planning for his fourth missionary journey. We saw his plan. It's, it's outlined in Romans chapter 15. But in Acts, you know, 22 through 28, we see what really happened. And, and I don't want to be a plot wrecker. I don't want to, you know, spoil this ending for you. But, but that is the ending. Then Paul sat for another two years in prison. Can you, can you imagine your situation? Can you imagine thinking, God, you know what happened to this great plan? I'm doing good things for you. How, how is it that this could all unravel? Well, my ambition was your glory. My objective was the nations in Spain. When plans, good plans, godly plans unravel, that is the real time that faith is demanded. That is when we have opportunity to expose our absolute trust, not in our efforts, not in human plans, but in the sovereign God who intrudes when I am a wreck for His glory and for my good. By the way, it's not just that he went to Roman chains. Did I say he got shipwrecked? Got bitten by a poisonous snake? And, and, and then when he got to Rome, who knew Nero was in charge? Just sitting there month after month chained to a Roman soldier? That's a plan that has gone amiss. But look at this. While sitting in that prison... The Apostle Paul has opportunity to write. And he writes one of those churches that had given a gift. Maybe even the brothers there feeling guilty. We gave them a gift to take to Jerusalem. And that was the beginning of the end. We should have anticipated that. We we should have said, no, Paul, stay with us. Because we're going to be the church that loves you. We're not going to be like Corinth down south. We're going to keep on loving you. We're, we're going to be the church that follows the gospel completely. And you're going to be so encouraged. You're going to write us and say, you are my beloved. They never anticipated he would write that letter in prison in Rome. But this is what he wrote in verses 12 through 15. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, meaning here in Rome, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. What he means is, by my attitude of absolute trust in the God who is sovereign and who intrudes in my mess. 
they have become more bold to speak the word of the gospel without fear. The imperial guard, or depending on the translation you have, it might, might say the praetorian guard. That's a Latin word. The imperial guard were soldiers, obviously, in the Roman army who were paid twice what normal soldiers were paid. They had extraordinary influence in Rome. In fact, so much influence that several historians wrote that the Caesar often was forced to curry favor among the Praetorian Guard, among the Imperial Guard, because they were closest to him, and they had swords. Now, now can you imagine... This wasn't just ordinary soldiers. It wasn't like the soldiers who rushed Jerusalem and had no influence and just had to follow commands to take them 120 kilometers. This was the imperial guard, men of great influence. Now think about this. If you're a non-believer and you have a job eight hours a day, seven days a week to be chained to the Apostle Paul, how would that be for you? The Apostle Paul said... You need to know that this, my imprisonment, what I have suffered, God intruding on my plan to do things my way has been for the better advance of the gospel. So who shared the gospel in Spain? I, I researched this. You know, the Catholic Church, the traditions say, well, um, it is James, the first pastor from Jerusalem, who is the patron saint now of Spain, he's the one that brought the gospel. The problem with that tradition is James had already been killed in Jerusalem. It wasn't James. There is no other indication in tradition which one of the apostles shared the gospel. What, what about this? What if there was this extreme barbaric Roman colony that needed order who better to share the gospel than soldiers of great influence? So much so that as Spain developed as a point of power, two later emperors, one of them Hadrian, came from Spain. I want you to know, brothers, that it has greatly benefited the gospel because of my situation. The whole household of Caesar knows, in fact, they all bring you greetings. Can you imagine the church in Philippi getting a letter and said, hey, by the way, the household of Caesar brings you greetings. That is better for the gospel. Here is a passage of Scripture that I'm confident the Apostle Paul knew. This is a passage of Scripture that's often honestly misinterpreted the prophet Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says this, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a feature, future and a hope. You need to know, no matter how ruined your plan is, no matter how you feel about your great and awesome vision for your life that has totally turned to ashes, that God has a plan for the welfare of the nations. You saw that in these waters. You should see it in my life because my family was not a gospel-believing family. Just like Ravi's family, my family was reached by Baptist missionaries. God has a plan for the welfare of the nations, not for evil, to give you a future, to give us a future. 
That's why Peter, writing under the period of Neronic persecution, wrote this, you know, God is not short in his promises, but he is patient, not wanting any to perish. And by the way, I left out one important phrase. God, this is Peter, by the way, writing to the church. God is not slow in his promises to return, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish. Okay? Can you hear him? They want to make sure and keep it clean. God is patient because he has a plan for the welfare of nations. All the difficulties, GBC, some of you pioneers who have seen such heartache in the history of this church, you know, God has a plan to use you for the welfare of the nations. For your good, God is patient. He knows you can't afford to send every single missionary to every single nation that needs the gospel. And so he's bringing the nations here. Don't panic. Rejoice because what a sovereign God is doing to intrude on the plans of a nation is for the welfare of the nations, for our future, and to fill our hearts with hope. In 1953, many of you know this story better than I do. A young American couple was sent to Singapore for one year to wait on a visa from Indonesia because they were appointed by their mission board to go to the nation of Indonesia, share the gospel. They were filled with joy. All along the way on that boat ride, they anticipated the goodness that God would show to the people of Indonesia. And after several months of waiting here in Singapore, they got a letter Dear E.N. Polson, it is my honor to inform you that your application has been rejected. It was an honor to inform a missionary the application has been rejected. Now, what would a man do when his entire life's map was suddenly in ashes? <laughs> Dr. Polson said, I think I'm going to apply for PR. He had a plan to stay one year. God intruded with disappointment, and he stayed for 64. Thousands of men and women heard the gospel because God intruded right here. Hundreds of pastors and missionaries were trained because God intruded in 1953, and a man never got the visa he was hoping for, but instead got the citizenship he had no idea he would have. In 1810, a young missionary named Adoniram Judson had this vision. He was appointed by the Congregational Church to go to India and join William Carey. William Carey, the father of modern missions. While on that boat ride, Judson had nothing to do but read Scripture. And so as he was reading the Bible, he became convinced that baptism was immersion. It was believer's immersion. And so the first thing he did when he landed in Calcutta is he asked William Carey to baptize him. He went from Congregationalist to Baptist. And then the British government found out there was an American in India. 
You see, they had, they had nothing to say to British citizens because they were a part of the empire. But the last thing they wanted in India was an American missionary stirring up the nationals by asking them to change their religion. So the United Kingdom forbade Adoniram Judson to join that team, William Carey's team, and kicked him out of India. He, he, he was devastated. That's a, that's a sacrifice to come all that way on a boat, to, to begin learning the local language on the boat, and, and then be told, sorry, there's a train coming. It's going gonna, it's gonna to wrinkle your plans a little bit. It's going to wreck your, your dream, your, your life's adventure. And, and so he said to his wife, I, I don't know what else to do. We'll get on a boat and we'll stop at the first country that lets us in. And, and William Carey and his team sent them off on the docks and gave them one bit of advice. Try every nation in this region, but don't go to Burma. The Burmese are impervious to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the death sentence even for a Burmese person to agree to change their religion and become a Christian. Just whatever you do, don't go to Burma. But then God intruded. The only country that would let him land was Burma. For six years, he learned the language, stood at a roadside, and shouted, Oh, anybody who's thirsty, come and listen. For six years, he labored without even one convert. Now, I, I don't know about other mission boards, but my mission board, at the end of six years, if you don't have one convert, your evaluation is not going to be good. <laughs> they're they're going to send you back to Kentucky. Where, where people already believe. Six years, you know, six years of the prison of no results. But, but instead of grieving, he decided, I'm going to translate the Bible into Burmese, a Bible that's still being used by Pastor Andrew upstairs every two o'clock Sunday afternoon. And, and then in the eighth year, he got his first convert. The first Burmese man who dared to face the death penalty because he heard good news. Two years later, a huge church grew. Eighteen, one eight. At the end of his life, there were 6,000 believers. But he left a Bible in the heart language, and he left a legacy of discipling discipling disciples who would disciple other disciples. Today, there are more Baptists in Myanmar than every country on this planet except for India and America because God intruded. Because a man, when his plans burnt to ashes, when a train ran down his glorious life plan, he said, Sovereign God, for my good, for your glory, you direct me. If you're here this morning and, and you're looking back or even looking now at your plans and you feel disappointment and brokenness, you are not alone. Everyone here has joined you on that journey, has stood on a trestle, looked back and see the train coming that would wreck everything. 
But this is the worldview, the biblical worldview. God would have us embrace when plans collapse, when, when the map maker intrudes and reveals another plan. Will we be people who would say, yes, Lord, whatever your plan is for your glory, for my good, I surrender all. My, my great vision, my great plan for the future, I just give it to you. We would stand in a long tradition of missionaries named Paul and Ernie and Adoniram if we were to say, God, your plan is not my plan. Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are higher than mine. You were sovereign. Intrude now for my good and for your glory. Will you bow with me for just a moment? I would just like to give you a, a bit of time. Okay, if you're here and you're, you're suffering a Paul-like experience, it's like real time for you. It, it's intense. You're, you're gripping onto the trestle of your life. You, you feel it shaking as the train runs over your dreams. Would you be prepared to say, with the Apostle Paul, with the missionary named E.N. Polson. Not my will, but your glory. Would you be willing to bow in your metaphoric garden of Gethsemane and say with Jesus, Father, I, I had something else in mind, but not my will, but yours be done. Would you be willing to say, with a young disciple maker like Ravindra Gunta, yes, yes, at this moment, my answer is yes. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is active in his world. We thank you that you are patient with us, not wishing that any should perish. You delay by grace until we realize that you are the plan maker. You order our steps. You guide us. You intrude in our lives in a way that is better for us and for the gospel. So may we be like the Apostle Paul, who sees glory in darkness, Victory in chains. May we look with anticipation at the plan that you are unrolling in our lives. And may you find us full of obedience. May you find in us a willingness to say, yes, Lord, to this in difficult days with expectation that this will be far better than our plan. This will take us where you want us to be, where you want us to go. And so, God, hear from our hearts now. Yes, today and tomorrow. Hear your people say, yes, Lord. Father God, I bless you that you have brought us, each of us here, on purpose. 
because we needed to hear a message from a man like Paul whose plans unraveled. We need to know that the gospel got to Spain, is preserved in Spain, that Spain sent out some of the most productive missionaries in the history of the church. We need to know that no matter what kind of mess our plan dissolves into, you are the sovereign God who intrudes, who intervenes, and takes us in a way that is good for our hearts, that fills us with hope. Do this for your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to invite you to stand with our worship team as we sing our closing song.